The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Before I read the text today, I do want to just do a quick up, just kind of where are we at, kind of catch us up where we're at. Um, he's writing... Uh, kind of responding to some correspondence back and forth between this this new church and and Corinth, Greece, and it's the first century. It's it's uh, it's it's hard to figure out how to best live the faith when you're the first generation of following Jesus in your context, and maybe some of these questions that he's interacting with for some of us might be like, "Duh, that's what Christianity does," but. This was, the, this was their original letters trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ. And, uh, you know, there's, it's pretty long. It's 16 chapters. Now, Paul didn't go, uh, chapter 9. You know, he didn't pull out his laptop. You know, I don't know how many scrolls this is. But, it's, you know, we've divided up with chapters and verses so that we can study it and we can reference it and say this section versus saying about 63% through his scroll. You know, it makes it a lot easier to have these numbers. So we're at chapter 8. You know, halfway through, uh, and I'm I'm really enjoying the way that uh, the context, though, uh, is 2,000 years ago. Uh, we find that the principles of being a human and following Jesus have not changed very much. The, the difficulties and also, I'm glad that we come together each Sunday and study God's word here. My hope is that you also, in your discipleship groups or your neighborhood groups, in your own personal time in your family, that you uh, you have places where the Scripture is around you and possibly even reading through. Uh, chapters or books of the Bible in chunks. He's been encouraging these new Christians and in light of what Jesus has already done. So our overall theme is that we would see this life or we'd see one another and we'd see who God is through, through the lens of the gospel, that we would have correct views of the way this world works. And the things he's been talking about is uh, seeking unity, fighting sin. And my hope is that as we continue today, we will see that there's a, there's a beautiful picture of love in all of this. Uh, the topic today is about our liberties, uh, what's our freedoms as a Christian. And you may think after these last sermons, uh, the, the Bible's just full of don'ts, you know. And, but I would say there are plenty of don'ts in the Bible. And as loving parents, uh, you probably are aware the word don't is uh, actually a good thing many a times. It's for health and safety of our own children, and, and it does come out of love. But there's also plenty of do's, and almost for every don't, there is a do in the Scripture. But we, we need to remember that in, um, in life, um, the don'ts uh, can be uh, just as much as full of love as the do's. And, and one thing that's been going on in my family is I have a, have a 15-year-old. So if you've had a 15-year-old and, and you've wanted them to be safe drivers, you, you, you follow the rules of teaching them how to drive and, and you don't force another person to do that most of the time. You know, like you, you yourself are willing to like, all right, I've made you, now I'm going to make you a good driver. Let's go, right? So, um, so Joy and I have been doing drives, and there's a, there's a window of 50 hours that you're supposed to have before you get licenses, licensure and all this stuff. So, and when I first heard that, I was like, that seems like a long time. And now I'm like, that's so short. We're going <laughs> to... This is, this is going to take a little while because what I find in these first 10 hours, like these first 10 hours, so you're like, what, what's her car, Dave? I'll watch out, right? No, I'm just kidding. She's, that's fantastic. But she's in the first 10 hours still, okay? She's in the first 10 hours. And in the first 10 hours, there's a lot of don'ts. And th- for those of us who have been driving 30, 40 years, it's like, 
I don't think about the don'ts most of the time. I think about mostly um, just driving defensively and the right radio station. Like that's like the extent of drive. But I would say that in these first 10 hours, uh, don't do this, don't do that, comes from Joy just doing what she's naturally thinking is right. She's not trying to do things wrong. She's just like, I think I should turn left, so why don't I get to the far left of whatever road I'm on? It's like, no, those are bad. Those are dangerous places over there. Stay over here in your lane, and we'll, we'll get places a lot sooner. And, and one thing that I, I, I kept telling her um, or pretty early on is that uh, I, I would recognize that her face was like forward, and her eyes were forward, and her hands are on the wheel, which is good. But when you've been doing this for two minutes straight driving, I recognize who drives like that? right? Like driving is being aware of there's mirrors for reasons and there's all these windows around your car, not just the front one, you know? So I'm trying to help her like, okay, Joy, don't just look straight ahead. So then we just start talking about like turn left on 93rd street. So she's like, oh, she has no idea what these street names are. She's dad takes her places. So now she's like, oh, oh, all these street names. And then I'm recognizing the car is starting to like and it's my side going towards poles. And I'm like, Joyce, don't, don't look at signs. Look ahead. Look ahead. Right? So I could see the complexity of training and learning and uh, correct development and, and when the don'ts and the do's need to work together. And, and I just want to share that today that my hope is, is that you would see living as a Christian in the kingdom of God is very similar. It's very similar and it's quite complex because not all of us are on the journey at the same pace, the same maturity, the same age, the same faith, the same awareness, and it gets a little complicated. This doing things that are right or wrong in our chapter, um, my hope will free you today as we talk about freedoms and don'ts and do's. Paul's going to use a specific situation that's not driving a car, though that would be cool if that just popped in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Like, I did not know they had those. Like, but it's on food sacrifice to idols. So for us, maybe in our uh, Western, modern Western context, this isn't something maybe that we deal with regularly. Um, I would say around the world, this is still an issue within churches on what do you do with idol worship um, sacrifices and meals and things of that nature. But right now, my hope is that you would see um, uh, a relevancy to the, the principles behind the passage today and a care for those in the world that do have these very contrasting pagan religions they live alongside. Uh, we need to be reminded that the city of Corinth uh, was a very pagan city. They had many false gods and they were worshiping these as part of their religion and they would sacrifice food uh, to, these, to these false gods and these idols and then they would consume the food in whatever manner their religion uh, told them to do that. And we can assume that the people of Corinth, that uh, they weren't always Christian, they just became new believers, maybe within the last few years even, when they're receiving this letter, that that was their norm. Their norm was having little statues and idols and even seeing their neighbor's idols and like, oh, I want that idol in my house too. And they would, they would consume food and sacrifice food to these false gods. But the beauty is they repented of their sins. They've turned from these false gods of the world, and they, they leaned on Jesus, and Jesus saved them, and they became a part of the church. And now Paul, a loving father in so many ways, is trying to write to them this letter. 
Some in the church, uh, before we read this passage, just to give you a little background, some in the church uh, felt like this food um, that was sacrificed to idols, maybe at, at, at the temple or at some, a neighbor's house, and you eating that food that was sacrificed to the idol was a sin. So like in most communities, uh, two groups begin to form. One was more of the permissive group that said, um, it's okay. I mean, we're not worshiping that idol, but the steak is awesome over there, right? Like, but there were others that were saying it was more restrictive because it, it, it kind of maybe elevated idol worship, which isn't what Christianity or following Jesus is about. So this specific passage is talking more to the permissive group. How do you interact with those that are maybe more legalistic or restrictive and those that are saying don't, don't, don't more often? But I want to say in light of this, uh, and even in our own country, even in so many divisive things that are going on right now, the goal to be to be better is unified. Like we, we want to honor God. One would saying, I can honor God with eating the, the food. And one would say, I can't honor God with eating food. But the goal is they want to honor God. And like understand that in this today. So I'm going to read the chapter. It's just 13 verses. It's not very long. I'm going to read it so you get the context. And we're going to kind of, as we normally do, kind of parcel it out and see what God has for us. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, this morning, may we um, appropriately see what you would have us see in this passage, Father, thank you for um, the unity and community and the care that uh, our church has for one another. That as um, as we read this, maybe there's encouragement happening, but also there's areas of development in our community. And may, may we continue to seek to be more aligned with your word than our desires. It's in your name. Amen. So as I shared a second ago, Paul's, as you can tell, 
talking to the more permissive group, the more progressive, the more free group in this situation. And Paul's affirming that their position, their freedom to eat this idol-worshipped meat, if you will, um, is okay. And why? Because in verse you know, 4 through 6, it says, an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. So the eating of this food that was prepared in maybe some sort of uh, pagan state, as a, like, like as I make this roasted chicken to this little idol on the shelf, the, whoever the chef is or cook is or whatever for this, right? Like th- when, they, when they bring it to you to eat it, you're like, mm, KFC, right? You know, it's like, it's like good. It's just delicious. Because whatever was going on over here with the little idol thing, there's no real entity that that little block of stone is connected to. So Paul is saying to the permissive group, you are right. It's, it's okay. It's, it's meaningless because the God it represents is also meaningless. And he uses the truth about God to reinforce it in verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's talking about what truly exists. And it's like, it's because of God we exist and he is one. So point number one, our, our first point today is truth comes from God. And at Winter Jam, John Cooper had a, a whole very powerful, very passionate speech on this, right? It's like, there is one truth, and it comes from God. And any other truth that comes outside, that's not evaluated by who God is and what God has said, and does not agree with who God is and what God has said, that is not true. So we have a standard. We have something to stand on. It's the words to build our life on that Jesus shares. This, these are the truth things of this world. So we need to recognize it's a pillar of what Paul is saying here about should we eat meat, sacrifice to idols? Should we do things in this world that are meaningless in one way? Do they affect our relationship with God or not? So the argument of these two groups trying to seek what is right. It feels like there's a liberty, there's a freedom in the food. And the other one thinks, no, there's sin in that food. And I love what Paul does here. He says, okay, we have this situation going on, these two groups, this, this meat, we have to now decide, can we eat it or not? He said, let's look at God. That's what he says. That's where he starts. And this is why I encourage all of us, when we study the Bible, whatever passage or paragraph you're reading, part of the questions as you look at the context and what does God want me to do right now, we always ask the question, what does this passage say about God? Because it is his character where everything else flows from. It's key. He's the one and only. And in reality, people are going to make gods out of all kinds of things in this world. And we have freedom in Christ. And we need to recognize that these gods are false. And they should not affect our relationship with God. Look what else Paul does here in his statement. There's the, the two persons of the Trinity are listed. From whom, for whom we have existence. That's the Father. 
And then he changes the preposition, through whom we have our existence. And that's Jesus, that God worked through Jesus to create all the things. But he did not create little gods, but he did create food for us. And he also created the existence of humanity to love God. And he also, through the work of Christ, created an existence that Christians could have a relationship with the Father, that people could be redeemed. It's through the work of Jesus and the cross that we can be saved. So I want to point out today that the passage is not primarily about clearing up this disagreement between these two groups. He wants to tell the permissive group that you're right, but he's also exhorting them. He's like, but you're wrong. 8.1 says this, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Do you see the arrogance that Paul's pointing out in this permissive group? Yes, it's true. You are free to eat food. You, you have a right understanding of who God is, but you have forgotten to love. I like his contrast between puffing up versus building up. When you think of puffing up, I instantly went to a puffer fish. Have you guys seen these things? I mean, I've never seen one in real life, but I'm familiar with the, it's this big and it's like 15 times bigger and then slowly floats away or whatever. However, it just looks bigger. So it's puffed up. But what, it's just full of, there's no more muscle in the fish. There's no more Part, there's more fish. It's just more water inside there. And so puffing for us more as, uh, as people or humans, you know, if you get into a fight and say you're 80 pounds and you want to look 120, you might <gasps> breathe in a big breath and look at I've been working out clearly. That's what happens, right? We, we puff our chests up. We, we, we bulk up, but we're just air. We're no stronger. We did new, no extra workouts to become that big looking. Think of a balloon. A balloon is just this floppy rubber piece of material. I don't know if they had balloons back then, but I'm sure Paul would use it right now in his teaching. <laughs> but you blow up this balloon, it's big, but it, it's, 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 it's expected to pop. Like when you see a balloon, like that's going to pop. It, that's what happens when knowledge puffs up, you're just waiting for it to pop. But what does love do? He uses the words build to, to strengthen. And that's what he's leaning on today from the very first verse. Yes, knowledge is important. It's good to know what and where you can be free. But the goal here is building up one another. There are two types of knowledge. There's the worldly, self-edifying knowledge that puts the elevation of self first. We all experience, we all have done this. I want to learn more so that if I get to say things to other people, I will look smart. I will look good. I will look better. I will sound better. I will be impressive. The word I was in all of those sentences. But the second type of knowledge is God-glorifying knowledge that puts self last and puts God first 
and it includes love. This is the kind of knowledge we should be seeking. Self-edifying knowledge can even be theological in nature. People can actually study the Bible so that other people think they are really connected to God. And if they're really connected to God, then they must be really cool and I should like them and be with them and be like them. And the person enjoys all those accolades, but he's using God as a way to get self-edified. May we not do this. May we see following the ways of God being a way first and foremost that we get to be connected to God. And if God deems to use you as a guide for others, praise God for doing that. But may that not be our first and primary goal. But we are aware of our sinful tendencies We are aware that even we can take things of the Lord and twist them and use them for things for ourselves. And I want to just stay here for a second, that we have tendencies to think of ourselves before we think of God. And this is our second point today. Point number two, be suspicious of yourself. Really early in the book, when sinners say, I do, talking about a marriage, a husband and wife, learning what it means to be a husband and wife, this idea of being suspicious of yourself is a hard thing to learn when you've never done it. I'm saying this because I'm telling you, it was not normal for me as a single guy to be suspicious of myself. To be a newly married man, it was not normal for me. To be married 23 years. It is not normal for me to be suspicious that I might be wrong in this situation. So there are times when I'm arguing a position with someone and I'm 90%, this is being very kind to myself actually, I'm 90% wanting to get my point across and about 10% of my brain considering if what I'm saying is actually receivable. Can anybody relate in the room to that right there? Most of my power is getting across my opinion and my knowledge of whatever situation just happened. Now, it's up between you and, we'll just say, because we're a church, between you and God, if you care or not. I might have said that before, right? It's like, how broken is that? And this is where point number two is so important for us to recognize, Truth comes from God, but we must be suspicious of ourselves that we may not be on the right track. That there could be something off about our thinking. My words puff me up. And may we not forget that it's love that builds up. And this leads us to our last point. But I want to read that bottom section again. It's seven and following, because that's where we're going to close today. Eight, seven says this. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. No better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now this is where the lines seem to be gray. It's kind of like the, the, the meat, if you will, of the passage is in this section. Yes, Dave, we recognize that uh, the truth comes from God. Yes, we recognize that I'm a sinner and I can be wrong. But what is this passage saying? There are freedoms that you have in Christ that could actually make another brother or sister in Christ struggle. For their context, the issue was, as we've shared over and over, eating food offered to idols. But what does this look like today for most of us who aren't struggling with this specific idol worship meal? Well, I want to list a few because sometimes saying these words and these phrases recognize the canvas that we all kind of live in. Maybe it's your views on alcohol. Maybe it's watching movies with different themes from from war to romance and everything in between. Maybe it's listening to certain songs that have certain themes. Or maybe it's cussing and crude joking. Or maybe it's voting for one politician over another from a school board to the president of our country. Or maybe it's views on vaccinations or mask mandates or the LGBTQ agenda and what our role should be in that or abortions or what our role should be in that or Black Lives Matter or world affairs or the very disagreement that's happening right now between you and your spouse or you and your kids or you and your extended family. There are a lot of opinions and disagreements and areas where you're like, I think I'm free in my opinion. I think I'm right in my opinion. I've sought the truth of the scriptures and I believe this to be true. I'm seeking myself to be suspicious. I might be wrong, but I really think that what my opinion is on this view and this position is correct. But can we agree that we're not going to solve all these problems in our generation? Can we agree that even even if or as we solve one, the time it took, five more popped up? So even if we can agree there's differing opinions, they're not going to cease. The differing opinions are not going to cease. Now, I believe in all those areas I mentioned, we should seek the scriptures and believe what God believes about them. And we should act and think and talk to other people about them. But here's the key of the morning. We have a great calling as Christians, and it's to love. 8.11 says this. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. You sin against Christ. 
Paul tells us that we are to love one another as we disagree. He even points to Jesus and reminds us, when you disagree with another Christian, remember that Jesus loves them and that Jesus died for them. The brother for whom Christ died is how Paul says it. Why does Paul do this? Why is Paul telling the church, hey, remember Jesus died for that person that you're mad at and that you're arguing with? I think what it does for us is it reminds us that person has value. How much value does that person have that you're arguing with or the group that you're mad at? Well, the value is whatever the price of God's son's death is. That's the only way I can put a number on it. What's the value of that person's salvation, life, and helping them not sin? The death of God. That's how valuable their life is. So what Paul wants to do and remind us today is they have a soul. They could be hurt. Your actions affect them. You should care about them. Jesus died for them. And here's the beauty of this whole passage today. Jesus gave up his freedoms for us. What does Christian mean? Little Christ's. Would you be willing to give up your freedom, this knowledge that you have all figured out, that you can love somebody? We may be right, but we can be very wrong in how we talk about how right we are. And not only do we sin against the person, Paul's telling us we sin against Jesus. This is why we're speaking truth and love. This is the only option for the Christian to speak truth. You must speak truth in love. Say you win an argument with someone, but then afterward, they hate you. That is not Christianity. Now look at you, you won. I picture it, it's like the, the car in the, in the movie Cars where he wins, but he's a jerk and he gets all the trophies, but nobody cares. You guys know that scene? Here's your dumb trophy, you moron. You know, it's like, it's like, let's not be that. Let's be the one who gives truth in an environment of love. Christians have on record not done this well. But you know when Christians have done the best is when they sacrificed Those are the stories we tell when Christians give up their freedoms for the betterment of society. Of the many positions that you and I must choose in this life where we're going to land, I do believe we're supposed to seek the Bible. I do believe we're supposed to seek church history. What have godly people thought over the years? And I think we're supposed to seek godly counsel now. But without love, we're nothing. I can't wait to preach through 1 Corinthians 13. 
three key words. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not boast. That sounds like a great way to argue with somebody. Patiently, with kindness, not boastful. May we care about our brothers and sisters enough that we would not allow our freedoms to cause them to stumble or not grow or not learn. And because there's always going to be a shadow, there's always going to be a film in us understanding true knowledge on this side of heaven, there's always going to be multiple perspectives on many of these issues. And right now, my goal is that as we seek the right path, we do it in love. And I believe this, guys, I believe this even as we planted this church. I believe that because of diversity and a loving community, there is strength. I think we're all the same. We're not as strong. There is something about the way that we come together because we found a house nearby and God reached out to us. Or we live in Overland Park or we live in Kansas City and we met somebody. They're not just like us. But we all were interested in Jesus. And it's in that diversity, in the unity, in the diversity that makes Neighborhood Church special. Do you guys feel that? I feel that here. So I want to propose three ways as we close that helps us sin less against Christ, be built up, not puffed up, and have lasting unity in God's family. I'm going to put these up here one at a time on the screen. So number one, the first way to know, our first way to help us is to know that you're a sinner first. Be suspicious of yourself. Remember that each of us is flawed and could be wrong in any component of this. And even if the majority agrees, it does not make it right. Even if the minority agrees, it does not mean you're right. The Pharisees thought they had the Messiah figured out. Boy, were they wrong. May we not be so prideful that we think we're beyond sin, sin and end up killing the very name of Jesus that we're trying to proclaim. Let's not do that. No, we're a sinner first. Secondly, know Jesus died for all sin. Know that the very passion you have to get things right, know that Jesus died for the sin that got you, the faith that you have in Christ, and that everyone, even the person that you're disagreeing with, everyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Everyone can repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus if your brother and sister are seeing things differently than you. Pray for them. Love them. Jesus actually commands us and makes a point to say, love your enemies because that's not going to be easy for you. I'm going to say it again. Love your enemies. Last week, we talked about a spouse finding Jesus and the other spouse haven't made a decision yet. What does Jesus say to the spouse who's a Christian? Stay. He or she might feel like an enemy sometimes, but they may be saved through your relationship. Thirdly, 
Love first, freedom second. Can we say that together? Love first, freedom second. Let's be that kind of church. Have a heart of sacrifice. This will create a safe and healthy environment to share truth back and forth with a brother or sister. Pray for your own guidance. Pray for their freedom. But when they're weak, be patient, be kind, and do not sin against them or our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, may we be a church that love is first. May we preach truth and preach freedom, live in freedom. May we do that, but may we not do it at the cost of hurting others or blocking others from growing in their faith in you. May we love first. May we speak truth and love. And Father, as you sent Jesus and he was obedient, he gave us his freedom to be with you in heaven. He came down and became flesh and limited himself so that the truth could be understood and told. And as Paul said, he would stop eating meat for the love of his brother. May each one of us stop doing any one of our freedoms to lead others to you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.